in the, um, in the last song we sang, sang about being true to the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, um, talked about bearing its reproach and its shame. Uh, song of, gives us the opportunity to affirm in music uh, two things, really. One, one is the truth of the cross and the gospel, and, and the other is the fact that there is, there is a, a scandal attached to it, there is something about it that the world finds distasteful, and, and the fact then that there is sometimes pushback uh, to those of us who affirm the gospel. And un, unless I completely misread our, our setting and our time and place, it seems to me that, that all of us who are committed to Christ and the gospel are, are, are recognizing that the, the culture around us, the society around us, seems increasingly hostile to that message about Christ and what, what God has done in him to meet our desperate human need. It shows up in a lot of ways. Um, it, it's not uncommon these days um, when, when I read uh, one of the major daily newspapers to, to see reference to somebody who refers to uh, traditional Christians, those who affirm traditional doctrine, not only about the gospel, but about other things like, say, sexual morality, refer to such people as bigots, bozos. The, those are some of the terms that I've heard and read. There, there's a, a pushback ag against traditional Orthodox Christians functioning in traditional Orthodox ways. And, and in fact, questions are raised about, about whether, whether such people are, are really Canadian and, and can really represent Canadian values. Two, well, multiple recent examples come to mind. Over the last uh, year or so, there has been public uh, debate about whether Trinity Western University should be allowed to launch a law school. Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia, is the, it's the largest evangelical Christian uh, college or university uh, in Canada. It's certainly uh, the flagship in many ways of, of evangelical Christian university type education in our land. And, and they've been doing education well for a long time, and, and they appealed to the province of British Columbia for the, the right to launch a law school with, with some particular emphases within it, especially about charities law, which apparently is not, um, is not discussed nearly as much as it could be in many existing law schools. So they made the case for having a law school. Well, in response to that, the... Uh, among other people, the, the, the head of the uh, Association of Canadian Law School Deans publicly went on the attack saying, they shouldn't be allowed to have a law school. Why, they have a community um, covenant that, that students have to sign on to, which, which says they will not participate in, in sex outside of a heterosexual marriage. They're anti-gay bigots. This is Canada. 
Canada affirms same-sex marriage, how, how can they produce lawyers who, is, who will serve Canadians if, if they have values like that? More recently, in fact, just this past Monday, a, the Supreme Court of Canada heard a case with regard to Loyola High School in Montreal. Loyola High School is a, it's a private Catholic high school run by the Jesuits. And, and the province of Quebec is seeking to force every school in the province, even a school like Loyola, to teach a course in, in world religions from a, a completely neutral, as if there is such a thing, secular perspective. And Loyola High School has said, we're, we're certainly prepared to talk honestly and respectfully about all the world religions, but, but we will only teach it from our Christian worldview, from our understanding of the way things are in God's world. We are who we are, and we should be allowed to function as if we are who we are. And the province says no. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada heard the case this past Monday, It'll probably be a few months before we know their answer, their decision in this case. But we all ought to pray that the Supreme Court will act rationally in, in this situation and affirm freedom of a Catholic school to be a Catholic school. That's not really asking too much. Recently, the Prime Minister um, traveled to Israel. You heard about it, you read about it. If you didn't, welcome to this planet. Anyway, it was, it was all in the news. Prime Minister took a bunch of other Canadians with him on a trip to Israel. Now, there, there were several uh, evangelical leaders who were a part of the, the group that went at their own expense. Steve Jones, president of, of our National Fellowship of Churches, was in that group. During that trip, somebody discovered that there was a pastor from Ottawa, pastor from an associated gospel church in Ottawa, who was there on the trip, who, you won't believe this, a year before that, had preached a sermon from Romans 1, and then said, God is not pleased with homosexual activity. I know you find that hard to believe. But he really did. And, and so the Globe and Mail outed him. And they said, how is it that, that somebody so un-Canadian, who's so bigoted, so out of touch, so on the wrong side of history, could possibly be allowed to go along representing Canada on this trip to Israel? And they, they asked a few um, politicians in Ottawa, what they thought of that. Since the Prime Minister is a member of the Conservative Party, they asked somebody from the Liberal Party and somebody from the New Democratic Party. And they got the predictable answers. In, in Canada, in Canada, same-sex marriage is legal, so real Canadians don't say negative things about it. Think that one through. When, when we say something is legal, we don't, we don't say, we're not passing moral judgment on it for every Canadian. It, Im, imagine this. Suppose someone had, had written in the Globe and Mail 
There's, there's, a, there's a guy on this trip in the entourage of the prime minister. In fact, there's probably even someone there paid, paid for by our tax dollars who actually thinks smoking is a bad thing, and he's actually said so in public. Smoking is legal in Canada, you know. So real Canadians would never say something negative about smoking. Now you say that's preposterous. Of course it is. And it's just as preposterous to say you can't be a real Canadian if you affirm these traditional Christian values that we've somehow gotten beyond in our country. I mean, the, the list could go on, but, but depression will set in if I go much farther. So, so a lot of Christians are, are, are taken aback by all this and, and caught by surprise and, and to say, what in the world is going on here in our beloved Canada? But the real surprise is that we're surprised by hostility and pushback from the unbelieving world around us. The question becomes, how, how do we navigate that? Uh, how do we perhaps regain credibility? How, how are we going to respond to this kind of hostility? On the night before the Lord Jesus died on that cross that we've sung about, he ate a final Passover meal with the apostles. And, and during that meal, he, he said a lot, beginning to prepare them for his departure and for what it was going to be like as his followers after he was gone. And, and there, there, there's a, there are themes running through that, what we call the upper room discourse in John's gospel. That, that relate very much to this whole question about the nature of the world around us and its reaction to Christ's followers and the gospel and, and what, what we need to do in order to respond to that, in order to, to, to make the gospel an option for the people around us. So the, John gives us that account of what Jesus did starting in John 13 and through chapter 16. And then in chapter 17, he gives the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father at the end of that evening. So we've got five chapters to look at this morning, this afternoon, however long it takes. Um, we're going to look at this, this theme. First of all, the theme that Jesus did predict this hostile reaction. We, there's no need to be surprised. Now, Look at it. In chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So in this place, as in others, Jesus makes it clear, we, we who follow him, who, who seek to obey his teaching, who seek to make him known, who, who, who allow his, his values, the values of God's kingdom to shape our lives, we should not be surprised when the world responds to us in the same way the world responded to him. And the way the world responded to him 
was by and large to reject him. Then into the next chapter, chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. All this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the hour is coming when those who kill you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their hour comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. And so to the apostles, Jesus says, we're Jews. You're going to be speaking to the Jews. You're going to be bearing witness to me, the Jewish Messiah. And, and as you try to communicate that message in the synagogues, the leaders there are going to think that they are doing God a service by persecuting you, by casting you out. And he said, I'm, I'm telling you this to warn you so you won't be surprised, so you'll understand this is what lies ahead. At the end of that same chapter at verse 31, Jesus says, do you now believe? A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So again, the, the theme of warning. This is the way it's going to be. You're going to have trouble in this world as my followers. But, but he says, I'm telling you all this so that you can have peace in, in the midst of that. You can have peace in the midst of whatever trouble you experience as my followers in this world. He says, in fact, I have overcome the world. Now, it didn't look like it right then as he and the small band of apostles were eating this final Passover meal at which he told them he was about to shed his blood to give his life to deal with human sin. Didn't look like it. Didn't look like it certainly the next day when he hung on the cross or when they laid him in the tomb. The, the sign, the, 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 the great sign that indeed God had vindicated him and he had overcome the world was when God raised him from the dead, which we have sung about already today. But he appeared to witnesses. He didn't, didn't appear to the whole world. And, and you and I now live in between the times, in between the advents of our Lord. And, and, and God has given evidence of what's going to be true in the end by raising him from the dead. But still the world goes on in unbelief. And so by faith, we affirm he has overcome the world. And we have hope and therefore peace in the midst of whatever trials we go through. And then in chapter 17... In Jesus' prayer to the Father, beginning at verse 14, speaking about the apostles with him, he said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. 
Jesus makes it plain here in his prayer to the Father. You sent me into the world to fulfill the plan of redemption, salvation. The same way that you sent me into the world, I have sent these. These you've given me, these who believe in me, I've sent them into the world. They're in the world, not of the world. They're in the world as a kind of distinct society, marching to the beat of a different drum. And so he prays, sanctify them by your, by your word, which is truth. And all this is a reminder that we who affirm faith in Christ have not been called to a life of comfort. We've been called to share in his mission to this world. And, and sometimes that's going to be uncomfortable. But comfort is not what it's all about. He's called us to share in his mission, the mission of God's kingdom, making, making the good news about what God has done in Jesus Messiah known to the world, being a community that embodies the values of God's kingdom, we're on a mission. So, hearing all this from our Lord, when, when the world pushes back and says, are you out of your mind to believe that, to say those things? You must be nuts. You're a bigot. What do you mean there's one way to God? You can't be serious. Don't you know we live in a multicultural country? What's wrong with you anyway? How can you really believe those totally outdated, bigoted notions about ethics? When the world pushes back, the, the obvious temptation is to say, maybe we need to reshape the message. Maybe we need to uh, modify some of this. But the answer is no. Well, why are we surprised when we find ourselves with pushback? But it is uncomfortable and painful. So how, how are we empowered to deal with that? Well, that's, Jesus answers that question. And the answer is, Jesus promised to bestow the Holy Spirit to, to empower us to face all this. So, for example, in chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. One of the, perhaps the major promise of Jesus to the apostles that night was that very soon God would fulfill his promise about the new covenant, which included bestowing his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to indwell all his people and empower us in a fresh new covenant way. And so Jesus states the promise here. John the Baptist had already said in preparing the way, I baptize you in water for repentance. The one who comes after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus reiterates it here. At the end of chapter 14 and then again in chapter 16, there are um, a couple of places where he talks about the, the gift of the Spirit, which seem to have a very particular focus for the apostles. Namely, 
enabling them to remember all that Jesus had taught when he was with them face to face and and guiding them into the rest of the uh, special revelation that God wanted to give through his son, who is God's final word. Now, that has implications for us. It means we can trust the New Testament because it is the witness of the apostles to Jesus Christ. In, in chapter 16, though, we, we have in verses 7 through 11 this special text which makes it clear that the Spirit will be at work in that world around us. Actually, go back to chapter 15, um, the last couple of verses, 1526. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. At that point, I can, I can imagine the apostles thinking, the Spirit's going to come and the Spirit's going to, going to do the testifying. Whew. Maybe we're off the hook. But Jesus goes on to say, and you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. In other words, the Spirit will do his work. He will bear witness to Christ through those who believe in Christ, who proclaim the message. And then in chapter 16, verse 7, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What hope do we have? That an unbelieving world will repent and believe the gospel and confess Jesus as Lord? The Holy Spirit is at work through his people in the world. As we proclaim the news, the good news about Jesus, the Spirit is at work, Jesus promises, convincing the world of the truth. We're we're not in this in our own strength. We aren't in the mission trying to just do our best. We ought to do our best, but we do it by the power of the Spirit whom the risen Christ has poured out to indwell and empower us. So Jesus makes it clear that the Spirit is at work empowering us as we proclaim the gospel, convincing the world that it really is true. But there's another aspect of the Spirit's work that that is really crucial in Jesus' words that night, and that is this theme in which the Holy Spirit, bestowed by Christ, creates a holy community for all the world to see. And and evidence of God's work in the world, in the church. So if we go back to chapter 13, verses 14 to 17, we we have this account of of Jesus here washing the feet of the apostles. And, And he makes the point there, verse 14, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. Back in the previous verse, he says, you you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. But he makes the point that those who really follow Christ, who are in any sense leaders, are to be servant leaders just as he was. Now, servant leaders don't cease to be leaders. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and I am that. But the shape 
that, that real, godly leadership takes is leadership that seeks the common good, does not seek personal status or power, seeks, thinks responsibility and common good rather than all those things. And he says, that's the way you, my followers, need to be in this world. Now stop and think about it. If, if the world can look at the church and see a community marked by servant leaders who think common good and responsibility, not status and power, do you think that might be attractive? What, what do you think Canadians think about our leaders, political leaders? Mention the Canadian Senate strike up a conversation, and what do you think the reaction will be? I mean, I, it's, it's hard to imagine the things that people might say critically about those, those whom we've appointed, who've elected to lead us. If, if the world can look at the Christian community and, and see leaders who really are Jesus-like leaders, it's a pretty powerful testimony. Another way to put that is what Jesus says in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, these are Jesus' words. Think, think fast forward a bit, the Apostle Paul, Galatians 5 the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of this Spirit whom Christ pours out upon us, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And so we get joy and peace and goodness and faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. In, in many ways, all those are manifestations of self-giving love. You see, the fact is the we ought to be concerned about things like purity of doctrine, for sure. But, but the world around us, the unbelieving world, can't sort out purity of doctrine, but they can see observable love. And Jesus says that that should be the mark that will cause people to say, wow, they, they really are followers of Jesus. How many of you remember a song from, I think, the late 1960s, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love? Okay, there are several of you here who may not be as old as I am, but you're old enough to remember that. Um, in my first pastoral ministry, which was back in middle America in south-central Indiana, a, um, while I was there, our choir sang a kind of a choral modification of that simple song one Sunday morning. And after the service, the chairman of the board um, grabbed me and said, love, love, love. What is all this love, love, love stuff? That's what the liberal church talks about. Love, love, love. Purity of doctrine is crucial, you know. What is this love, love, love stuff? And I said, well, George, okay, they'll, they'll know... A, They'll know we are Christians by the fact that we love one another. I, remind me, who was it that said that first? I mean, where do those words come from? Well, um, he knew where they came from, and he finally admitted it. 
but, but he just couldn't stand it. I confess it wasn't the only issue that he and I had some tension over, um, as you can well imagine. But it's, it's Jesus who said it. A community of love will be noticeable to the world. Really will. And, and, and Jesus says, that, that will be the mark that you're really living as my disciples. What, what does it mean to fulfill God's moral law? According to Jesus, our Lord, loving God with all your being, all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. All of God's moral law is an outworking of those two basic points. And so we, we need to stop and ask, when the world around us looks at whatever they know of the church, is this what they see? Is this the first thing that comes to mind? And then again in chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, we're in Jesus' prayer now. He's been praying up to verse 19 specifically for the apostles. Now he prays in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in, in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Here, Jesus recognizes that, that love, genuine love for one another will produce a kind of unity among Christ followers, which the world should be able to see, which should be a sign that, that God is doing a very good thing in this community. To speak of the Apostle Paul again in Ephesians chapter 4, he emphasizes this same thing. Maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he talks about the commonalities that we share, like one body and one spirit, like one God and father of us all, like, like one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one hope. And, and he says that, that that is a given unity that you need to affirm, practice, and guard. With, with all who give evidence of belonging to Christ. The interesting thing is in that passage, Paul recognizes that, that unity doesn't mean we all presently see everything exactly the same way. In fact, at the beginning of the chapter, he says we maintain the unity of the Spirit by, by humility and by forbearance. Do you know what forbearance means? It means putting up with one another. It means putting up with idiosyncrasies and quirks and things that annoy us and putting up with people who just haven't got it yet and don't see everything the way we do. That is to say, they don't see all things rightly like we do. Right? Putting up with one another. That's what forbearance is. It's, it's recognizing we're all part of the family, we're all on the journey together, but we're not... We're not, not all where we need to be and where we will be ultimately. And in that same passage, Paul goes on to talk about how the risen Christ has poured out gifts on his people, including among them apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers 
who communicate God's word. And he says, until we all reach the full unity of faith. In other words, we affirm our link to God's people while recognizing that we don't yet see everything exactly the same way. But we hang in there with one another in unity as we're moving forward, all of us seeking to, to grow to a, to a greater understanding of, of truth and what it means to live for Christ in this world. So the church is the visible sign of the invasion of God's kingdom into this world, and we should be evidence of the benefits of God's rule. In John 17, Jesus envisions that, that the world may be convinced that it, indeed Jesus is the Savior sent from God if we, his people, manifest a, a really significant kind of unity. Obviously, it's a visible kind of unity. It's not just an invisible spiritual reality. It, it's a visible kind of unity if the world is going to see and be convinced. So the world around us should be able to look at the church and say, I want to say those people are crazy, but wow, you know, they're able to bring together distinct races, distinct cultures in, in, in a kind of unity that transcends that. We're not doing so well at that. We, we talk about multiculturalism in Canada, but do we do it well? Not always. Should be able to look at the church and say, I may think they're crazy, but they really love one another, and, and, and that's a community where some real unity occurs. They should be able to see in Canada that in the Christian believing community, the French-English divide is transcended in a way that we continue to wrestle with. And on and on it goes. Now, the world sees whether we, whether we have unity or not in a whole variety of ways, I suppose. When they hear us talk about fellow Christians, they get a sense of whether we really affirm the other members of the family or not. When, when they see groups of Christians present, perhaps in community events, they, they get some sense of our relationship with one another. When those who aren't yet believers visit a church service. They, they should get some sense that we really believe what we're saying and singing. They should get some sense that we really care about one another, that we really affirm and accept one another with, with all of our wrinkles and our warts and our idiosyncrasies. The fact is, it's one of the reasons why it, it does make sense to invite not yet believing friends to visit church because, as Jesus himself noted, seeing this community, if it is what it ought to be, is an important part of convincing the world about the gospel. The world also sees something about us in our day when they view our online behavior. But before you post something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever else is out there, you may need to stop and ask, what, what will this say to everybody who sees this? Uh, occasionally on Facebook, I, I get into 
dialogue via, the, via comments with, with people about biblical, theological, etc. issues. And I always have to remind myself before I post comments that some of the people who see my Facebook posts are, are not a part of my evangelical Christian subculture. And, and, and I want them to see, even via Facebook or Twitter, that within the Christian community, there's the, there is the reality of, of, of a unity that's, that's not about total uniformity. We don't all make all the same decisions. We haven't yet come to all the same conclusions. But, but we affirm one another as brothers and sisters on the journey. So think about how you respond even online. So obviously we don't have as a church, as, as traditional Orthodox Christian churches, we, we don't have the same kind of clout in Canada that we used to have. What are we going to do to recover credibility and respect? It's pretty clear, I think, from what Jesus said, it's not by assertions of power and status. It's not about saying, hey, we should rule the country. It's not by responding in kind, paying back evil for evil, slander for slander, saying nasty things about those who call us bigots and bozos. It's the very opposite of what Jesus taught and did. Rather, as Jesus taught the apostles that night, it's, it's by being a truly redeemed community. It's by being an alternative community that's really marked by love and by unity, kind of things the world can appreciate. Here's the way I, I would put it. A loving and united church shows a hostile world that the very message they attack creates the kind of community they seek. Because you see, people won't be attracted to become a Christian if they don't see the community of Christians as a community that, that they might actually want to be a part of. So as we become the community God wants us to be, that's one powerful sign to the world that maybe they need to think again about the message that creates this community. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your son, manifestation of your love for us while we were still sinners. For your son who himself loved us and gave himself for us, for the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us to declare the gospel and to embody the kingdom in, in this world. Empower us then and make that a reality that the glory of Christ may be seen in the community of his followers, that the gospel may gain credibility in this world, that the spirit may use us to draw the world around us to yourself. We pray 